Hello, this is Peter Shea, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 6, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This first article is called, As Ukrainian Attacks Surge, U.S. Officials See Signs of Counteroffensive. Kiev has not formally announced the start of operations, but on Tuesday, Ukraine said the Russians had blown up a dam on the and the Dnipro River, potentially imperiling residents and the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Ukrainian forces have stepped up artillery strikes and ground assaults in a flurry of military military activity that American officials suggested on Monday could signal that Kiev's long-planned counteroffensive against Russia had begun. The fighting, which began on Sunday, was raging along several points on the front line. But further to the east of of where many analysts had expected Ukraine's counteroffensive to launch. Even if it has started in that eastern area, experts said, the battle would allow Kiev's troops to try to accomplish the same goal, head south toward the Sea of Azov and cut off the land bridge connecting occupied Crimea to mainland Russia. On Tuesday morning, the Ukrainian authorities said that Russia's military had blown up a major dam on the Niporo and the Dnipro River, sending torrents of water downstream and potentially imperiling population centers and the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which draws cooling water from the dam's reservoir. A local Russian-appointed official said Ukrainian shelling was to blame, but it was unclear who was responsible. Videos verified by the New York Times confirmed the damage to the dam at the Nova Kakovska hydroelectric power plant. The Ukrainian authorities said that flooding had already begun, and the Ministry of Interior said officials in 10 towns and villages and in the city of, of Kherson had been ordered to prepare to evacuate residents. President Volodymyr Zelensky called an emergency meeting of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council. The council's secretary, Oleksiy Danilov said on Twitter, Mr. Zelensky condemned the damage to the dam as an act of terrorism and said it was further evidence that Russia needed to be expelled from all Ukrainian lands. Only the victory of Ukraine will restore security, he said in a statement. The terrorists will, will not be able to stop Ukraine with water, missiles, or anything else. Mr. Zelensky had warned last year that Russia was preparing a false flag operation to blow up the hydroelectric dam in the south of the country in a bid to frame Ukraine for the humanitarian and ecological disaster that could ensue. The dam blast came after Russian Ministry of Defense after the Russian Ministry of Defense said on Monday that a major Ukrainian operation had begun had begun at five locations in the eastern Donetsk region, Donetsk region and that it had repelled the assaults and inflicted casualties on Ukrainian forces. Moscow's account could not be independently corroborated. Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Defense, Hanna Malyar, said on Telegram that Kiev's forces in some areas were moving to offensive actions in the war that began when Russia invaded its neighbor 15 months ago, but she stopped short of saying it was a decisive new phase in the war. A defensive operation includes everything, she said, including counteroffensive actions. Pro-Russian bloggers noted that a strong Ukrainian attack had begun Monday morning near the town of Velika Novosilka in Donetsk. Mikhail Zvinchuk, 
a pro-Russian blogger who writes under the pseudonym Rybar, described intense fighting as Ukrainian soldiers in German-made leopard tanks seized control of the village of Novodonetsk on Monday evening, a possible sign that Kiev had pushed its NATO-trained forces into the battle. He said the battles were being contested under heavy artillery fire. Alexander Alexander Khodakovsky, the commander of a Russian proxy group, also described seeing leopard tanks during the fighting near Novodonetsk, where, he said, Ukrainian forces had felt out our weak spots. Mr. Zelensky, in his overnight address Monday, expressed gratitude to all our defenders who gave us the news we expect. We see how hysterically Russia perceives every step we take there, every position we take. He added, the enemy knows that Ukraine will win. They see it. They feel it thanks to your strikes, soldiers, and in particular in the Donetsk region. Ukraine has long said it will make no formal announcement about the start of its counteroffensive, and Ukrainian officials have not told their American counterparts exactly when the battles will start, but provided them with a time frame for when they intended to begin the push against Russian forces. Sunday fell within that time frame, said U.S. officials, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive intelligence. The American officials based their assessment that Kiev had most likely begun its counteroffensive partly on information from U.S. military satellites, which had detected increased movement from the Ukrainian military positions. The satellites have infrared capabilities to track artillery fire and missile launches. U.S. military analysts also said they believed that Ukrainian units had begun an initial push to determine the positions and strength of Russia's forces a traditional tactic that Americans had been training Ukrainian forces to use. An American official said that testing for potential weaknesses in Russian defenses, manpower and morale, what the U.S. military calls reconnaissance by force, would most likely continue for several days. If successful, the official said, the main thrust of the Ukrainian counteroffensive would become more evident during that time. U.S. and Ukrainian officials would also be watching closely to see how Russia reacts to these attacks spread out along the front lines. At the White House, John Kirby, a spokesman for the National Security Council, said he would not go beyond the statement that Ukrainian officials made. What I can speak to is how hard we worked to prepare them to be ready, Mr. Kirby said. The president is confident we did everything we could over the last seven, eight months or more to make sure they had the capabilities to be successful. Much is writing on Kiev's ability to reclaim territory lost to Russia since the war began. Ukrainian officials say they must prove as quickly as possible, they must move as quickly as possible to liberate people living under Russian occupation and subject to abuses, including torture and the forced deportation of children to Russia. Success could also support Ukraine's push for longer-term commitments from the West for additional military aid and security guarantees. It could also strengthen the hand of Mr. Zelensky and any peace talks with Russia. Failure, or a lack of demonstrably quick progress, could complicate Kiev's push for additional security guarantees at a NATO summit this summer. The front line in southern and eastern Ukraine has been largely static for months, with the exception of intense fighting in the eastern city of Bakhmut and operations by small Ukrainian units. In northeastern Ukraine, anti-Kremlin forces have been staging cross-border raids into Russia since last month. Weeks after Russian forces captured Bakhmut, 
the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, General Oleksandr Sirsky, said on Monday that Kiev's troops were making an advance near the ruined city, although the extent, although the extent of any gains was unclear. Ms. Malyar, Ukraine's deputy minister of defense, said on Telegram that Bakhmut remained the epicenter of hostilities. There, we are moving along a fairly wide front, she continued, adding, the enemy is on the defensive. One difficulty in determining the exact start of a counteroffensive is that the fighting could begin with feints or diversions. And to carry out a successful counterattack, Ukrainian troops must navigate mostly flat, unforgiving terrain and staunch Russian defenses. The operation is expected to involve thousands of Ukrainian troops, including many equipped with newer and more advanced Western equipment, like armored personnel carriers and tanks. Western officials have long thought that a counteroffensive would focus on southern Ukraine as part of a strategy to sever the land bridge between Western Russia and Ukraine and Crimea. But no matter where Ukraine, but no matter where Ukraine attacks along a, lo- along a front line stretching hundreds of miles, Russia's defenses will be formidable. Moscow's forces have had months to dig in, lay, lay minefields, and prepare entrenchment, entrenchments. The Pentagon has trained new Ukrainian units with the hope that they have the power to turn the tide, but some American officials have noted that dug-in Russian defenders could prove difficult to dislodge. This next article is called, Biden Administration Shrugs Off Ukraine's Attacks in Russia. For months, U.S. officials said cross-border operations risked a dangerous escalation, but those fears have ebbed. During the first year of Russia's war in Ukraine, the Biden administration fretted constantly that if Kiev hit back inside Russian, Russian borders, President Vladimir V. Putin would retaliate against not only Ukraine, but also possibly NATO and the West. But those fears have ebbed. As Ukraine's counteroffensive edges closer, a series of bold attacks in Russia, from a swarm of drone attacks in, in, Moscow, in Moscow to the shelling of towns in the Belgorod region bordering Ukraine, and an incursion into the country using American-made armored vehicles, have been greeted by the Biden administration with the, dipl- the diplomatic equivalent of a shrug. It's not like we're going to go out and investigate this, John F. Kirby, a National Security Council spokesman, said last week. In a reference to whether Ukraine or Ukrainian-backed groups were behind the attacks in Moscow. In mon- on Monday, fighters attacked at least 10 villages in the Belgorod region with heavy shelling, its governor said. Behind closed doors, senior administration officials have seemed even less phased. Look. It's a war, one senior Pentagon official said last Thursday. This is what happens in a war. American officials view the cross-border attacks as preliminary operations for Ukraine's possibly unfolding counteroffensive, a sign that it will have multiple phases. The operations, they say, are an important test of Russian defenses and a flexing of muscles ahead of the big military push. That is a far cry from the administration's tiptoeing last year when American officials took pains to make sure they were not giving Ukraine weaponry that could hit inside Russia, citing escalation fears. We are not encouraging or enabling Ukraine to strike beyond its borders, President Biden said last May in a guest essay in the New York Times, just two months after he scuttled a European proposal to send MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine, 
we're not going to send to Ukraine rocket systems that strike into Russia. Fast forward 12 months, and Mr. Biden has signed off on sending Ukraine F-16s, Ukraine F-16s, an equally lethal fighter jet. So what happened? Since the early days of the invasion, Russia's battered military has shown itself unable to make significant gains against Ukraine, and a wider conflict would risk drawing the United States and NATO even more deeply into the war. And fears that Russia might use a tactical nuclear weapon appear to have receded somewhat, although officials warn that could change if Mr. Putin feels cornered. I think the administration has really turned the corner to understanding that not only is Russia the strategic loser, but that they are very likely going to be the military loser, said Evelyn Farkas, the top Russian and Ukraine, the top Russia and Ukraine Pentagon official during the Obama administration and the executive director of the McCain Institute. Dr. Farkas said that the fears of escalation remain, but that while they are real, they are not as frightening as Russia somehow prevailing. American military officials say the reality of warfighting is that it makes no sense to constantly play defense and fight an enemy on one's territory alone, without putting a fo foe's own home at risk. If you're in a war, you can't just sit back and give the initiative to the enemy, said Frederick B. Hodges, a retired lieutenant general and the former commanding general for U.S. Army forces in Europe. Under the U.N. Charter, every nation has the right to defend itself. So for Ukraine, from a legal standpoint and from a military standpoint, it makes great sense. Officially, Biden administration officials continue to say they do not want Ukraine to use American-supplied weaponry to carry out attacks inside Russia, either by Ukrainian troops or paramilitary groups. We don't encourage, we don't enable, and we don't support strikes or attacks inside Russia, Mr. Kirby said on Monday at the White House. Our effort is to support them in their self-defense, in defending their territory, their sovereignty. U.S. officials say that while the threat of nuclear escalation is not gone, Ukraine's cross-border operations are not the type of action that is likely to provoke the use of a nuclear device. American intelligence officials have said they believe Russia would use a tactical nuclear device only if Mr. Putin's hold on power was threatened. Its military began to completely collapse in Ukraine, or it faced the loss of Crimea, which Russian forces seized in 2014. But concerns remain that a miscalculation or mistake by pro-Ukrainian operations could transform a symbolic attack inside Russia into something more damaging, something that the Kremlin would feel it needed to respond to more strongly, or that, or, or that could generate tensions and disagreements among European allies opposed to any effort by Ukraine to expand the war, according to U.S. officials. U.S. officials also now say it is unlikely that Ukrainian attacks in Russia would prompt a Russian strike on a NATO country or facility. Mr. Putin wants to make sure the war does not spill over into other countries, which could prompt even greater U.S. involvement or spur the Biden administration to send armaments to the Ukrainians that it has been reluctant to give for fear that they would use them inside Russia, the officials said. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Of course, Mr. Biden has begun doing so anyway, from providing Ukraine with M1 Abrams tanks to the F-16s. 
Several current and former senior American, European, and Ukrainian officials said the recent cross-border incursions by pro-Ukrainian forces into Russia and drone strikes around Moscow marked the beginning of Kiev's long-planned counteroffensive. These preliminary attacks, what military analysts call shaping operations, are intended to disrupt Moscow's battle plans, pull Russian troops away from the main battlefields, and undermine the Russian citizenry's confidence in the country's forces. The officials said in interviews, they spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the planned offensive. The attacks have escalated in recent weeks after strikes in Crimea and other parts of occupied Ukraine against Russian railways, supply lines, fuel depots, and ammunition stores. Michael Kaufman, the director of Russian studies at CNA, a research institute in Arlington, Virginia, said the cross-border operations had two main objectives. The first is to bring the war to Russia and show that it is not invulnerable, he said. The second is to get Russian forces to take seriously the problem of defending their border and to get them to commit resources, perhaps pulling in troops from elsewhere. Mr. Kaufman added, These types of operations are low cost relative to their strategic impact and effectively magnified by Ukrainian information operations. One of the last things Mr. Putin wants is to have the Russian public worried that a war could come to its doorstep, two officials said. But the Biden administration is walking a fine line. While administration officials urge Ukraine not to use U.S.-provided weapons to strike Russia on its own soil, they've also said it was up to President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine and his military commanders to decide how they will use that equipment. We don't tell them where to strike. We don't tell them where not to strike, Mr. Kirby told reporters last week. We don't tell them how to conduct their operations. We give them equipment. We give them training. We give them advice and counsel. Heck, we even do tabletop exercises with them to help them plan out what they're going to, what they're going to do. Britain, another major Ukrainian ally, went further. Its foreign minister, James Cleverly, said last week that Ukraine had the right to project force beyond its borders, to undermine Russian attacks, and that military targets beyond a nation's borders were internationally recognized as being legitimate as part of a nation's self-defense. Mr. Cleverly said he did not have details about the drone attacks and was speaking more generally. Military analysts played down the possibility that the increasingly brazen and frequent strikes inside Russia could escalate the Kremlin's response. Last year's escalation fears, General Hodges said, were way, way overstated by the administration especially worries that Russia would retaliate against the West or NATO. But he noted that Russia had retaliated against Ukrainians. As time has moved on, with Russia continuing to kill innocent Ukrainians with precision weapons against apartment buildings, our continued tapping of the brakes on this made us look naive, General Hodges said. U.S. officials say that for now, Russia has responded sometimes forcefully, to the cross-border attacks, but has not escalated the war or unleashed any sort of new response to the operations. American officials say they believe Russia will not escalate as long as the Ukrainian strikes continue to be mostly symbolic and do not destroy critical infrastructure or targets of national importance. The one target that the Ukrainians hit last year was of national importance and a piece of critical infrastructure, the Kerch Strait Bridge connecting Crimea to the mainland. 
Russia responded to that attack by beginning a campaign against Ukraine's power grid, a notable escalation in the war. But other than, but other than the bridge, the strikes that the United States believes were carried out by, the Ukraine, by Ukraine or Ukrainian-aligned groups in Russian border cities or were targeting supporters of the Russian government have had more symbolic impact than direct impact on the war. This next article is called, Schools Received Billions in Stimulus Funds. It May Not Be Doing Enough. Pandemic aid was supposed to help students recover from learning, from learning loss, but results have been mixed. When the pandemic shut down schools across the country, the federal government responded with billions of dollars to help districts support remote learning, serve free meals to students, to students and safely reopen schools. In 2021, the Biden administration gave districts another $122 billion through its $1.9 trillion stimulus package, an amount that, that far surpassed previous rounds. Districts were required to spend at least 20% of those funds on helping students recover academically, while the rest could be used on general efforts to respond to the pandemic. Yet, while most schools have since deployed various forms of interventions, and some have spent more on academic recovery than others, there are, there are ample signs that the money has not been spent in a way that has substantially helped all of the new nation's students lagging behind. Recent test scores underscore the staggering effect of the pandemic, which thrust most of the, much of the nation's students into remote learning for extended periods of time. Students in most states and across almost all demographic groups experienced major setbacks in math and reading after many schools closed their doors. In 2022, math scores underwent the largest declines ever recorded on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which tests a broad sampling of fourth and eighth graders dating back to the early 1990s. Education researchers and advocates say recovering from the effects of remote learning should be the top priority, but it is, but it is unclear how much of the funding is helping students across the nation fully catch up. Plans for the relief funds have varied across the country. Some districts have invested more in extending learning time or offering intensive small group tutoring, focused on math or English, which research has shown to be among the most powerful interventions. Others have used much of their funds on facility upgrades, online tutoring services, across-the-board bonuses for employees, and other measures that education experts have argued are less effective for helping students catch up. National data on how the money has been spent is scarce. Is scarce. The federal government does limited tracking of the relief funds, which were sent directly to states. Many states, which dole out the money to districts, do not provide detailed breakdowns of expenditures. Some education experts, who have closely monitored the relief money, said the federal guidelines should have been more focused on addressing learning loss and were skeptical that many districts' recovery plans were robust enough. Although schools were initially slow to spend the money, they are now on track to exhaust the funding by the September 2024 deadline for budgeting the money. Robin Lake, the director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, said the impact of the funding has been a bit of a black box, and she expected to see different recovery rates across the districts. Ms. Lake said giving cross-the-board bonuses completing maintenance projects, and plugging holes in budgets were less effective in, in interventions. In some districts, I think we're going to see that the money was well spent, 
Miss Lake said. And in many ways, maybe most, it won't have been spent as well. At, it won't have been spent as well as it should have been in terms of addressing the urgent need right, right in front of us. She pointed to data showing that many students still did not have access to the kind of intensive tutoring programs that have proved effective, with demonstrated large positive effects on math and reading achievement. A federal survey conducted in December found that most public schools offered some form of tutoring, but only 37% provided students more intensive, high-dosage tutoring, which is typically done in smaller groups, takes place for at least 30 minutes, and includes at least three sessions a week. Out of all public schools, just 10% of students participated in that type of tutoring. Early reports, early reports show that schools have had difficulty setting up academic recovery programs. A recent paper from Harvard University's Center for Education Policy, Center for Education Policy Research found that schools struggled last year to carry out recovery programs at their intended scale because of staffing shortages and lower student engagement. The researchers, who sampled 12 districts, found that some of the estimated effects were positive, but even if the programs were fully set up, they would still not be enough to help all students catch up by 2024. Thomas Kane, the center's, fac the center's faculty director and co-author of the papers, said implementation has since improved, but remains far below the necessary levels. He expected to see some gains this year, but said a significant gap will remain since not enough schools were extending the academic year or placing most students in summer school. Every district can describe how they're spending the money, Mr. Kane said, but few, if any, districts have a recovery plan that's specifically sized to their students' losses. Education department officials said they were confident much of the stimulus money was being spent on academic recovery. The department's ongoing technical assistance and communication with states indicate that investments in academic recovery, staffing, and student mental health comprise the majority of local spending, Adam Schott, a deputy assistant secretary, said in a statement. Sasha Pudelski, a director at AASA, the School Superintendents Association, said districts were prioritizing spending on additional learning time. According to July According to July data from AASA, 68% of districts were spending some funds on expanded summer learning, 42% were, were adding learning time by compensating staff, and 39% were providing high-intensity tutoring. In Tennessee, 87 districts are participating in a program that provides matching grants using federal dollars to districts offering small group tutoring in reading or math. One of the participating districts, Elizabethton, Elizabethton City Schools hired 14, 14 full-time staff members to administer English language arts tutoring to 404 elementary and middle school students this year. Students attended sessions during the school day twice a week for 45 minutes each. Mira Newman, the assistant director of school Assistant Director of Schools for Academics, said the district was spending 56% of its $5.6 million in relief funds on academic recovery. The district has already seen significant gains. In 2022, 45.6% of 3rd to 8th graders were proficient in English, up from 33.9% in 2021 and 43% in 2019. Most of our money went towards students and closing the gap in learning loss, Ms. Newman said. Other districts have spent more relief funds on facility upgrades. 
Researchers at Georgetown University's Edonomics Lab estimate that a quarter of the last round of relief funds would be spent on facilities. Oregon's Oregon's Klamath County School District plans to use about 30% of its $16.1 million federal share on academic recovery programs and 70% on facilities projects. Those include buying new turf fields, replacing HVAC systems, upgrading flooring, renovating bleachers and baseball fields, constructing a gym, and surfacing an elementary school parking lot. Glenn Sismoniak, the district superintendent, said the projects would help improve student safety and wellness. Some bleachers had nails popping up and boards that were cracking. Without a new turf field, some students would not have a place to play during recess, and one of the football teams would need to travel half an hour to practice. Officials chose not to spend the funds on hiring staff because the money would eventually run out. We would have to fire them in three or four years, Mr. Sismoniak said. It's not a way to treat people. Officials instead tapped millions in annual state funding to hire reading specialists, add counselors, and expand small group and project-based instruction, which Mr. Sismoniak said has already led to improved proficiency in math among elementary school students this year. According to early assessments, last year, according to early assessments, last year, 36% of third graders met state grade level expectations for English, down from 42% in 2019. Wisconsin's Wisconsin's Kadahi School District is spending about 80% of its $4.7 million in relief funds on facilities upgrades and 20% on academic recovery, which includes professional development for staff members and employing literacy specialists. Among the district's third graders, 29.8% were proficient in reading in 2022, up from 23.6% in 2021 and down from 35.9% in 2019. Tina Owen Moore, the district superintendent, said officials were worried about sustaining salaries, so they spent more on upgrading HVAC systems and remodeling classrooms to allow for social distancing. If we only did high dosage tutoring while we had those funds there, well, as soon as those funds go away, we wouldn't be able to continue to support students, Ms. Owen Moore said. Marguerite Rosa, the director of the Edonomics Lab, said some facility projects, like new HVAC systems, were reasonable, but others, such as parking lot renovations, would not do much to help students catch up. Although she said she wanted to see improved academic recovery efforts, she did not expect many districts to revise their plans. With the looming funding deadline and steep enrollment declines expected to hurt some districts' budgets, she said officials were more focused on preventing school closures and wide layoffs. Pretty quickly, they're starting to panic, Ms. Rosa said. There's less and less energy on how to leverage, on how to leverage these limited dollars. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This next article is called, SEC Accuses Binance of Mishandling Funds and Lying to Regulators. 
The SEC said the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange mixed billions of dollars in customer funds and secretly sent them to a separate company controlled by Binance's founder, Chang Peng Zhao. Chang Peng Zhao. <laughs> the Securities and Exchange Commission on Monday accused Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, of mishandling customer funds and lying to American regulators and investors about its operations in a sweeping case that has the potential to remake the landscape of power and wealth within crypto. The SEC's lawsuit was the second time this year that federal regulators have accused Binance of evading laws designed to protect investors in the United States. The regulators have long seen the exchange, which has said it does $65 billion in average daily trading volume, as a major target in their quest to bring to heel a crypto industry that has been built around an explicitly anti-government ethos. In the 136-page complaint, the SEC said Binance had mixed billions of dollars in customer funds and secretly sent them to, set to a separate company, Merit Peak Limited, which is controlled by Binance's founder, Changpeng Zhao. Changpeng Zhao. The complaint also said Binance had misled investors about the adequacy of its systems to detect and control manipulative trading and about its efforts to restrict U.S. users from trading on its international platform. U.S.-based customers were supposed to have access only to an ostensibly separate company formed specifically to operate within the United States called Binance U.S. Binance and Mr. Zhao enriched themselves by billions of U.S. dollars while placing investors' assets at significant risk, regulators said in the civil lawsuit, which was filed in federal district court in Washington. In a blog post on Monday, Binance said its leaders had been trying to negotiate a settlement with regulators and were disappointed and disheartened by the SEC's decision to bring a case. The company said the case was a misguided and conscious refusal to provide much-needed clarity and guidance to the digital asset industry, and added that it would fight back vigorously. Binance also charged that the SEC had rushed to court to file the lawsuit, noting that last week regulators had served a new set of 26 document requests to the company. The charges were the latest actions by U.S. regulators and prosecutors to rein in the Wild West of crypto training, trading and force major players in the space to come into compliance with U.S. laws. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, which had been a big crypto trading rival of Binance's until it filed for bankruptcy in November, faces an October trial for fraud and other charges. In recent months, the SEC has also levied fines and other penalties against crypto lending firms. The SEC has taken the position that most crypto tokens issued by exchanges like Binance and FTX should be treated as securities under federal law. U.S. regulators are putting pretty huge speed bumps for Binance and are continuing to put the crypto world on notice, said Rina Agarwal, a finance professor at Georgetown University. Binance was already under increasing pressure. In March, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission filed its own civil enforcement action against Binance and Mr. Zhao. The Justice Department is also investigating the exchange for money laundering violations. Binance lost its outside auditing firm late last year, and the company has seen its control of the crypto market shrink. 
To improve its reputation, Binance has hired new compliance officials, including a former federal prosecutor who now heads its compliance operation. The SEC complaint exposes the underbelly of crypto, and big global exchanges like Binance have misled the public at large for years, said David Silver, a lawyer who has sued Binance several times. In all, the SEC filed 13 charges against Binance and Mr. Zhao, better known in the crypto world as CZ. It is seeking restitution from Binance and wants to bar Mr. Zhao from serving as an officer or director for any registered entity in the United States that issues securities. We allege that Zhao, Zhao and the Binance entities not only knew the rules of the road, but they also consciously chose to evade them and put their customers and investors at risk, said Gerbir S. Grewal, Grewal, director of the SEC's Enforcement Division. The CFTC is also seeking to bar Mr. Zhao for life from doing business that falls under its jurisdiction. The agency also wants to permanently banish Binance from the United States. The SEC and the CFTC often coordinate the filing of enforcement actions when they are investigating the same company, but the agencies have been engaged in a turf battle to determine which would emerge as the primary regulator of of crypto trading. Binance has long been based outside the U.S., the United States, offering high-risk trading options that are not legal for American customers. In 2019, it started a separate exchange in the United States that offered a smaller array of trading a smaller array of trading capabilities. The company said that the new exchange, Binance.us, would operate separately from Binance under its own leadership. But the SEC said the separate entity was really intended as subterfuge to conceal the fact that Mr. Zhao and his associates were actively enabling U.S. customers to trade on Binance's much larger, unregulated offshore exchange. The SEC's complaint accuses Binance of recruiting American customers to the international exchange, even though it was not supposed to operate in the United States. On the surface, we cannot be seen to have U.S. users, but in reality, we should get them through other creative means, a Binance executive wrote in an internal message excerpted in the complaint. When Binance took steps to submit to a U.S. regulatory regimen, it did so disingenuously, the filing said. Binance.us was supposed to be separate from its offshore parent, but behind the scenes, Mr. Zhao and other senior senior Binance leaders were intimately involved, the complaint said. That led one executive to remark that the entire team feels like they've been duped into being a puppet, according to the complaint. The SEC said Mr. Zhao gave instructions to encourage so-called VIP customers to bypass systems meant to restrict U.S. customers' access to the platform. Binance's plan to retain lucrative U.S. investors while pretending to restrict them was a success, the complaint said. Some of the allegations against Binance echoed the behavior that brought down FTX, leading to criminal charges against Mr. Bankman-Fried for using customers' deposits to conduct other business operations and make political and charitable donations. According to the, com- according to the complaint against Binance, the bank account of Merit Peak, the trading firm controlled by Mr. Zhao, has received more than $20 billion, including customer funds. FTX is accused of having used a trading firm called Alameda Research, controlled by Mr. Bankman-Fried, to improperly divert and use customer money. Sending Binance customer funds to Merit Peak placed those fun- funds at risk, including of loss or theft, 
and was done without notice to customers, the complaint said. This next article is called How to Start Birding. This summer, as part of the New York Times Birding Project, the Times will be sharing a series of prompts to help readers learn how to get started birding. Begin with something foundational. Learn to identify a few of the birds most commonly seen near, near where you live. For beginner tips, the Times spoke with Allie Smith, the, pro the project coordinator for Merlin, a bird identification app created by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, about learning to bird and the, joys, and the joy of it. How do I learn to identify birds? We're obviously a little biased here, so I'm going to recommend the Merlin Bird ID app. It walks you through a series of five questions that you should be asking yourself when you're looking for a bird, when you're looking at a bird. Merlin will ask, Merlin will ask you where you saw the bird, specifically, and the time of year. A lot of places see different birds depending on the season. Then, observing the bird for a while can really help. Is it tiny like a house sparrow? Is it really big like a goose? And the colors of the bird can help as well. Is it bright and yellow and colorful? Is it solid black? And then the behavior. What is it doing? Is it visiting a bird feeder? There's a very small list, relatively, of birds that are likely to visit a bird feeder compared with birds that are elsewhere in the environment. Is it spending a lot of time perched in a tree? Is it walking around on the ground? Is it in the water swimming? With all of these things put together, Merlin can give you a list of likely birds. But even if you're not using Merlin, those are the types of things that you should be looking for. The size, color, behavior, location, and date. What equipment do I need to start birding? Binoculars, field guides, or cameras, or travel, might help you find more birds or get closer looks at them, but you definitely don't need any of those. What should I keep in mind while birding in the summer? Birds are generally quietest during the hottest part of the day, so you'll probably see a lot more if you're going birding from sunrise, like 6 a.m. until 10 a.m. or so. Once it starts to get hot, birds really start to quiet down. They hide more in the shade. But if you can only get out during the middle of the day, try places that tend to attract birds, like near water. And then evenings can be really nice too. Two or three hours before sunset, birds start to get more active. What do you enjoy about birding? I'm just so deeply delighted that I get to share my neighborhood, my world, with these tiny feathered balls of energy that are bouncing around and singing beautiful songs and doing all these really wacky and wonderful behaviors, like weaving nests out of grass and showing off their shiny feathers. Each bird is its own little treasure. Even the common birds around here, like the grackles and house sparrows, they're so fun to watch. They're really goofy. It's also special when you get to see a more rare bird. I think they're so inspiring. These tiny birds that are able to fly from the southern tip of South America all the way up to Canada, Alaska, the Arctic, to breed. And they do that twice a year. That's absolutely incredible. They're tiny and yet so determined and powerful. This next article is called Robert Hansen, FBI agent exposed as spy for Moscow dies at 79. Mr. Hansen was sentenced to life in prison in 2002, bringing to close one of the most lurid and damaging espionage cases in American history. 
Robert P. Hansen, a former FBI agent who spied for Moscow on, off and on for more than two decades during, during and after the Cold War, in one of the most damaging espionage cases in American history, was discovered dead in his prison cell in Colorado on Monday. Federal authorities announced, the federal authorities announced he was 79. The Federal Bureau of Prisons said in a statement that Mr. Hansen was found unresponsive just before 7 a.m. at the United States Penitentiary, Florence, where he was serving a life sentence. He was pronounced dead after life-saving efforts by emergency medical workers. The statement did not identify a cause. Mr. Hansen's case was considered one of the most notorious spy scandals of his generation, shocking FBI leaders and other government officials when they learned that one of their own had been feeding information to the other side with impunity for so many years. To this day, the FBI describes him as the most damaging spy in Bureau history. In exchange for $1.4 million in cash, bank funds, and diamonds, Mr. Hansen passed along a torrent of secrets to Moscow, including one disclosing that the United States government had dug a tunnel underneath the Soviet embassy in Washington to eavesdrop on diplomatic and other communications. He also informed Moscow about three KGB officers who were secretly spying for the United States, two of whom were later executed. The magnitude of Hansen's crimes cannot be overstated. Paul J. McNulty, who was the U.S. attorney who prosecuted him, said on Monday in response to reports of his death, They will long be remembered as being among the most egregious betrayals of trust in U.S. history. It was both a low point and an, and an investigative success for the FBI. Mr. Hansen's arrest in 2001 briefly ruptured relations between the United States and Russia at a time when the two former enemies were seeking to build friendlier ties after the collapse of the Soviet Union. President George W. Bush expelled about 50 Russian diplomats, and President Vladimir P. Putin of Russia retaliated with a tit-for-tat expulsion of 50 American diplomats. But both sides were determined to end the matter there and not allow it to result in a more lasting rift. The discovery of Mr. Hansen's espionage embarrassed the FBI and resulted in changes to security procedures. He told investigators after his arrest that security at the Bureau was so lax that it amounted to criminal negligence. He said it was a simple matter to gain access to classified material on official computers with only routine security clearances. Any clerk in the Bureau could come up with stuff on that system. Mr. Hansen said, according to a Justice Department report on his case in 2002, it's criminal what's laid out. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Mr. Hansen pleaded guilty to 15 counts of espionage and conspiracy to avoid the death penalty and expressed remorse for his betrayal. I am shamed by it, he said during the 2002 hearing where he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Since July, since July 17, 2002, Mr. Hansen had been in custody at Florence, the Supermax facility that is considered the most secure prison in the federal system and used in recent years to house convicted terrorists Inmates there are typically held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. 
Mr. Hansen joined the FBI in 1976 as a special agent and went on to hold several counterintelligence positions that gave him access to classified information. He began spying for the Soviet Union three years after joining the, bu the Bureau when he was assigned to a counterintelligence unit in New York by walking into the New York offices of Amtorg, a Soviet trade organization that was known to be a front for the Soviet Military Intelligence Agency. He stopped spying for several years, starting in 1980, after his wife, Bonnie, walked in on him in the basement of their home in Westchester County, New York, and he quickly tried to cover up his papers. He confessed to her and to a priest affiliated with Opus Dei, the conservative Catholic organization to which the couple belonged. In 1985, he began spying again, providing information to the KGB. This time, he did a better job of covering his tracks, using encrypted communications and other secret methods. Even the Russians never knew who he was, identifying himself only by codenames like B and, Ram and Ramon Garcia. Mr. Hansen turned over sensitive information, said to include specific satellite intelligence collection cap capabilities. He stopped spying again after the Soviet Union collapsed, then resumed again in 1999. His betrayal went undetected for years as he collected at least $600,000 in cash and diamonds from the KGB and its post-Soviet successor, successor, SVR, which told him that they had set aside another $800,000 for him in a Moscow bank, according to prosecutors. In the 1990s, after the arrest of Aldrich Ames, a CIA agent who had also spied for the Russians, the FBI and the CIA realized that someone else was still providing Russia with classified information. And they began gray suit, a hunt for the unknown double agent. But it was not until 2000 that investigators were able to narrow the search when the FBI paid $7 million to a former Russian intelligence officer for a file on the anonymous mole who called himself B, a file that included an audio recording with a voice that the FBI analysts who knew Mr. Hansen eventually recognized. Using fingerprints, the FBI confirmed that the mole was Mr. Hansen and surveilled him for months, even promoting him to keep better track of him. In February 2001, Agents arrested him in Foxstone Park in the Washington suburb of Vienna, Virginia, a few blocks from his home, after he had left classified documents in a garbage bag at a dead drop for his Russian handlers under a wooden footbridge. Mr. Hansen seemed unsurprised at finally being caught. What took you so long, he reportedly asked when arrested. Robert Philip Hansen was born on April 18, 1944, in Chicago to Vivian and Howard Hansen a career Chicago police officer who did intelligence work for the department. An only child who was seen as nerdy and never fit in, Robert had a difficult relationship with his father, who emotionally abused him. He grew up obsessed with James Bond, collecting spy gadgets, and even opening a Swiss bank account. Mr. Hansen received a bachelor's degree in chemistry in 1966 from Knox College in Illinois, where he also studied Russian, but after graduation, he was rejected by the National Security Agency when he applied for a position in cryptography. He enrolled in dentistry school at Northwestern University, but later transferred to the business school, where he received a master's degree in business administration. While in dentistry school, he met and married Bonnie Wolk, a converted and converted from Lutheran to join her Roman Catholic faith. 
After a year working at an accounting firm, he took a position with the Chicago Police Department, specializing in forensic accounting. Four years later, he moved to the FBI. Bright but brittle, Mr. Hansen was said to have burned with resentment that he did not receive the respect and assignments he felt he, re- he deserved. With six children in parochial school, schools or college, he attributed his, de- his decision to spy for Moscow to money, although his reasons were never fully understood. Many of the factors that have motivated or influenced traitors in the past, such as greed, ideology, career disappointments and resentment, and drug and alcohol abuse, do not, do not apply to Hansen or do not fully explain his conduct, a Justice Department Inspector General's report on the case said in 2003. Mr. Hansen led a double life in more ways than one. An active member of the Roman Catholic lay organization, Opus Dei, Dei, Opus Dei, he presented himself as a religious and committed anti-communist conservative. But according to reports, he also visited strip clubs, allowed a friend to clandestinely watch him having sex with his wife, and engaged in what has said to be a secret but non-sexual relationship with an exotic dancer whom he plied with gifts and took and took on an FBI trip to Hong Kong. With Mr. Hansen, Mr. Hansen's ability to, to avoid detection was a signal failure of the American intelligence apparatus. His own brother-in-law, who also worked for the FBI, reported suspicions about Mr. Hansen to the Bureau a decade before his arrest, but the, super, but the supervisor he told had, dis, had dismissed his concerns. Mr. Hansen was the subject of multiple books and films, including a television movie in 2002 in which he was played by William Hurt and a full-screen movie called Breach in 2007 in which he was played by Chris Cooper. Hansen was a thicket of paradoxes, a suburban dad and outwardly devoted family man who professed to be deeply religious while at the same time betraying family, faith, and country, all and everyone who ever mattered to him. Anne Blackman, a co-author of The Spy Next Door, said on Monday, For 21 years, through the terms of four presidents and three FBI directors, he fooled them all. This next article is called, In a Year of Capital Feuds, Oregon Has a Political Breakdown. Bipartisan collaboration was once a point of pride in Oregon, where Republicans have brought the Senate to a halt with a political boycott. For the past month, the Oregon State Senate has started its daily proceedings by dispatching a search party. Unable to summon a quorum to vote on any legislation, the Senate president orders the sergeant-at-arms to track down the day's missing senators, largely Republicans who are now on the fifth week of a boycott. The sergeant scales the sergeant scales the stairwell the sergeant scales the stairwells of the Capitol, knocks on closed doors, questions staff members who coyly claim that their bosses are not present. When she returns empty-handed, the Senate adjourns, leaving hundreds of bills stored in a growing stack of blue and yellow folders untouched. I am so sad to be on the front lines of watching democracy crumble. Kate Lieber, the Senate's Democratic Majority Leader, said after another fruitless day trying to keep Oregon's government running. Oregon has long had a pronounced political split, reflecting the natural divisions between its rural farm and timber counties and its liberal cities like Portland and Eugene. 
but the state historically prided itself on the way its politicians usually seemed to find ground for collaboration. That political spirit, often referred to as the Oregon Way, allowed a Republican governor like Tom McCall to work through the 1960s and 70s, brokering pioneering environmental and land use deals with Democratic legislatures. legislators. Even up until 2009, Oregon had a Democratic U.S. Senator, Ron Wyden, and a Republican one, Gordon Smith, who worked so closely together that they were sometimes called a Washington odd couple. Now both U.S. Senators are Democrats, as are all statewide elected office holders, and there is a Democratic majority in both houses of the state legislature. A Republican has not won a governor's race in 40 years. The Republican boycott that has gridlocked the Senate since May 3rd, one in a series of boycotts since 2019, signals the degree to which bipartisanship has taken a back seat to, to, to strategic dysfunction. The standoff comes amid a particularly tumultuous year in state capitals around the country, with tensions stoked by a wave of abortion legislation. Moved in the wake of last year's decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and hotly contested bills on transgender issues, gun control, and voting rights. The Nebraska legislature did not pass a single bill in the first two-thirds of its 90-day session after a progressive lawmaker mounted a series of filibusters against all legislation, including some she supported, to protest Republican efforts to pass a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. There was also an issue in Montana where Republicans barred a transgender lawmaker from the House chamber after she vo vociferously objected to a similar bill. In April, Republicans in Tennessee expelled two Democratic legislatures, legislators who had joined in protests calling for gun control in the wake of a mass shooting in Nashville. The lawmakers were reinstated after a national uproar. And in Texas, acrimony between moderate and conservative factions of the Republican Party played out in a bipartisan vote on May 26th to impeach the conservative attorney general, Ken Paxton, with conservative members staunchly backing Mr. Paxton. The discord shows no sign of abating, as red and blue states race in opposite directions on social issues and posture to combat one, one another's policies across state lines. While Idaho lawmakers have moved to make it illegal to take minors to another state for an abortion without parental consent, Oregon has moved to increase access to such care for patients coming from out of state. Republicans in the Oregon capital have vowed to derail almost all legislation unless Democrats agree to a new direction, though they have not laid out precisely what that direction might be. They have singled out legislation on abortion and transgender issues, but also targeted bills on drug policy and guns. Ten senators have continued their walkout despite a new and voter-approved law that bars lawmakers with ten or more absences from being reelected. And Democrats are now looking to impose fines on lawmakers for each day they miss. So far, neither threat has worked. Senate Republicans will not be bullied, said the chamber's minority leader, Senator Tim Knopp. The breakdown comes at a time when the state faces crises on several fronts. Overdose deaths have nearly doubled in the past few years. Wildfires have made devastating incursions through the Cascades. Drought has strained water systems. Portland has seen record homicide numbers. Mass homelessness has spread across the state. 
Legislation that might address some of those issues has lain dormant while lawmakers have engaged in a bruising battle over a bill that would change state law to increase access to abortion services, protect abortion providers from liability, and expand Medicaid coverage for transgender medical care. Senator Daniel Bonham, a Republican, said he was particularly concerned that the measure would, would allow minors to obtain an abortion without their parents' consent and would affirm that teenagers as young as 15 could seek gender-affirming care on their own. Taking this stand was a moral obligation for me, Mr. Bonham said. He said that when he left the Senate chamber, he purposely left a Bible on his desk there, on his desk there, open to a passage in which Jesus says that anyone who causes a child to stumble should perhaps be drowned with a millstone around his or her neck. That such paralyzing division has gridlocked the Senate is a dismaying turnabout for those who have long watched Oregon politics. The bipartisan cooperation of the past produced pioneering legislation that declared that Oregon's beaches belong to the people, not private developers, as well as the nation's first bottle bill that sought to eliminate a growing litter problem by giving people a nickel for returning empties. Priscilla Southwell, a professor emerita of political science at the University of Oregon, said that the culture of finding common ground extended from the state's congressional delegation down to communities and family dinner tables. The shift in political winds has been years in the making. There were battles over the timber industry in the 1980s and over taxes in the 1990s. In more recent years, the steady gain in numbers by Democrats emboldened them to pursue more progressive agendas, even as Republicans began to dig in and prepare for conflict. That the Oregon way has really almost vanished from the scene, Miss Southwell said. The current situation is just poisonous. While both Democrats and Republicans have participated in brief legislative boycotts over the decades, Republicans have amped up the tactic. The latest boycott has gone weeks longer than any of the earlier ones. Some conservatives have started a movement with ballot measures approved in a series of counties to explore seceding from Oregon altogether and joining Idaho. All but two Republican senators now face the prospect of being ousted from the chamber at the end of their terms under the new law, although some party leaders have suggested they plan a legal challenge to the rule. The boycotting Republicans, along with a former Republican who is now an independent, have continued to attend committee meetings, but have made it clear that barring Democratic concessions, they will only return to the Senate chamber at the end of the session to pass what they see as critical bills on homelessness, affordable housing, and the state budget a proposal that Democrats have called unworkable. Senator Lynn P. Findlay, one of those boycotting, said he had seen a steady escalation in polarization as lawmakers in the middle were challenged by more extreme factions. He recalled his own decision two years ago to remain and cast a vote against a Democrat-sponsored gun control bill, even as some Republicans refused to attend the vote and came close to denying Democrats a quorum. The bill passed, and Mr. Finley was targeted with a recall effort by hardline members of his party who argued that he should have joined the walkout. That recall effort failed, that recall effort failed, but it has contributed to Mr. Finley's concern that there is a shrinking number of lawmakers who are willing to debate and compromise. We can't all run out the door if we don't agree with the viewpoints, he said. Mr. Finley said he joined this year's boycott because of a different concern. 
his long-standing belief that legislative materials are written in a way that ordinary people cannot understand, in violation of a law that requires they be written in plain wording. Democrats are now assessing what tools they have to force Republicans back. After a previous Republican walkout in 2019, the governor at the time, Kate Brown, unsuccessfully tried to have the state troopers round up the lawmakers and force their return. The current governor, Tina Kodak, has not made such an attempt. The latest tactic, proposed by Democratic lawmakers, is a $325 a day fine imposed on absentees, equivalent to their daily pay. It is not clear whether it is a stick powerful enough to produce results. Losing your legislative career seemed like a pretty darn big stick, Miss Lieber said. That was a stick that didn't work, so I don't know what I don't know that we have a larger stick to compel them. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 6, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Peter Shea. Thank you for listening.